Hello, welcome to another episode of Gospel Gal. My name is Marissa Namir, Gospel Gal. And today's episode is That's Catholic, a look at Catholicism, Reformation belief and practice, episode number four. So far in this series, we've discussed the differences between what is Catholic and what is Roman Catholic. We have looked at some ecclesiology, including pastors, and we have considered what their role is, what they provide to us, including absolution and the sacraments, Holy Communion and baptism. In today's episode, we will be looking at our traditions with regard to prayer and principles of worship. So welcome back, Joy. If you could just give us a little bit of background again about your tradition and what your tradition believes and teaches about prayer, written prayers, things like that. My tradition actually likes written prayers. I kind of took this quote from our Forms and Prayers book that you can find online or you can actually buy a copy of it. It says that the churches of the Reformation have historically included forms of prayer alongside their songs and liturgy in their service books. The Church of Geneva, for example, had the form of church prayers and hymns that first published in 1542, and the Church of England had the Book of Common Prayer first published in 1549. In our particular tradition, which is the URCNA, the Psalter and Service Book of Peter Stathenus, 1556 also contained a series of prayers. These prayers were first translated into English and included in the Christian Reformed Church's Psalter Hymnal in 1934 and were included in the 1959 and 1976 editions. Experience has shown that our prayers are an overlooked part of our liturgical life. Some of the reasons offered are that they are antiquated and verbose. What follows uses the older versions as a baseline while updating the language, shortening when appropriate, adding more prayers from the best of the broader Reformed tradition. So we have prayers from England, Geneva, Heidelberg, Strasbourg, as well as Martin Luther, and considering the liturgical and personal needs of our people. We believe this will enhance the prayer life of our people at home and of those who lead in prayer in public worship. I really love my Forms of Prayer book. I really love a particular prayer that I kind of read a lot just for comfort. It's called the prayer for the spiritually sick or distressed. So I enjoy using that prayer book when I feel like I don't have a lot of words to say. (laughs) I go to that and it has all the words written down. Um, I know that in our liturgy, we also have a pastoral prayer and I know that he usually uses some of the prayers that are written in that service book to guide our pastoral prayer as well. I really love the fact that they are gospel-centered. So every time we come to the Lord in prayer, we always acknowledge our need for a mediator and the fact that Jesus is the one that we come in. We acknowledge the fact that we come under the covering of Christ. So I just love that. Yes, I appreciate that you added the bits about gleaning from different traditions, including the Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer is our prayer book. It is considered one of the formularies for the Anglican Church and Episcopal churches also. There are various years where it was revised and reused. Thomas Cranmer was the architect of the Book of Common Prayer, and I just find it incredibly helpful And there is a book written on 
the topic of the prayer book from Peter Adam, who I have cited in other episodes of this series. Peter Adam wrote the very pure word of God, which is how Thomas Cranmer looked at what he was doing in the prayer book. It's using the word of God. Peter Adam shares this helpful insight on the Book of Common Prayer, and specifically, our church uses the 1662. Peter Adam says this, The Book of Common Prayer is richly and deeply biblical and still provides a standard that challenges and enriches us. Its aim was that nothing is ordained to be read, but the very pure word of God, the Holy Scriptures, or that which is agreeable to the same. There are four dynamics that make it a comprehensively biblical book. It is intentionally formed by biblical truth and focused on the gospel of Christ. It precludes and corrects unbiblical and anti-biblical doctrines and practices. The Bible is to be both read and preached and is the chief instrument of ministry. It provides responses to God that expresses Bible truths and uses Bible words. The Book of Common Prayer is intentionally formed by biblical truth. If you've ever looked at the Book of Common Prayer, and I know you have personally joy, but I would encourage the listeners and the readers of the article to find the Book of Common Prayer. You can find it just by typing in the words Book of Common Prayer 1662, or you can look for Daily Office 1662. The Daily Office just takes you through daily specific prayers and scripture readings. So we always have that rhythm, morning and evening prayers. Each takes about a half an hour. The amazing thing to me, when you had local parishes years and years ago where your town surrounded a church, they would actually go to church twice a day. So you would be gathered with a visible church twice a day to have prayer, morning and evening. So these are specifically written down orders, and they are full cram-packed with the Word of God. Peter Adam also stated this, The gospel is central to the identity, life, and mission of the church. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself, human, who gave himself a ransom for all. The central gospel message of the Bible is communicated in the Book of Common Prayer in a variety of ways. There is a constant restating of the gospel, of salvation history, and of biblical theology. The daily reception of the Psalms reminds us of God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the creation of his people, his covenants of love, his rescue as a deliverer, his answers to their prayers, his forgiveness of their sins, his call to them to trust and obey him. The book of Psalms is the Bible in miniature. I am just in love with the Book of Common Prayer, and I highly recommend the listeners get their hands on that. It's just so helpful. This is what it means when it says it either is actually quoting scripture throughout the Book of Common Prayer, or it is using Bible truths and Bible words. Here's a great example. This is one of the colics. Sometimes you're going to hear words in Anglicanism that you have no idea what they mean. A collect is a collective prayer that we pray together as the church. And this one says, O God, merciful Father, that despisest not the sighing of a contrite heart, 
nor the desire of such as be sorrowful. Mercifully assist our prayers, which we make before thee in all our troubles and adversities, whensoever they oppress us, and graciously hear us, that those evils which the craft and subtlety of the devil or man worketh against us be brought to naught. And by the providence of thy goodness, they may be dispersed, that we thy servants, being hurt by no persecution, may evermore give thanks unto thee in thy holy church, through Jesus Christ our Lord. O Lord, arise, help us, and deliver us for thy name's sake. Amen. So this is from my forms and prayer books. It says, Eternal God, the only creator, preserver, judge, and savior of the world, you alone hold the powers of life and death. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when he had conquered death and hell, announced, I was dead, but I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades in my hand. Yet often our circumstances seem to testify against your promise. What we see does not appear to agree with what we've heard. Yet even at the cross, where you seemed so absent and your son seemed so cruelly and unjustly abandoned by you, we have been taught that he was thereby fulfilling your purposes to redeem us from the power of darkness. We confess that our hearts are so bound to the reality that we see with our eyes in the moment that we easily forget the greater realities that we hear with our ears through your word. Teach us through these trials to number our days, recognizing that we are but fading in this age, but will flourish in the age to come. We know that these struggles are not tokens of your wrath, but are part of your plan to save us, sanctify us, and glorify yourself. While we may fear the circumstances, we no longer fear the condemnation of the law, the sting of death, or the sharp arrows of Satan. For we know that your Son gained victory for us by his death and resurrection. We ask that you would, even through these tests, deepen our confidence to appear before you clothed, not in the filthy rags of our own works, but in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Continue to look upon us in him. I just love that one. I love that one. It just, I love the way it just has gospel in it. Amen. And how honest it is, and especially the part where it says, often our circumstances seem to testify against your word and your promises, and we confess that our hearts are often so bound to what we see that we can't really make sense of what we hear through your word, the promises that we hear in your word. I don't know. I just love this prayer. So, It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing it, Joy. Yes, I love the biblical truth that is communicated whether it is directly from scripture or man-made prayer, these are great biblical truths and they communicate to us our fallenness and our need as well as the expression of God's goodness and tenderness and faithfulness to us at the same time. He's a faithful and loving father and I think that that is beautifully communicated in both of our prayer books and our traditions. How, do, how can we distinguish between the way we pray and the Roman Catholic Church prays? Well, we're not using a rosary. We are not praying to saints that have been deceased. And we are not praying to a co-mediatrix or a co-redemptrix. We pray to our Father who art in heaven by our one mediator, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Say that. 
Amen. The spirit testifies with our spirit. Let's talk about our two traditions with regard to the principles of worship. Your tradition would uphold a regulative principle of worship, and our church would uphold a normative principle of worship. So I think the difference between the regulative principle and the normative principle is that the regulative principle of worship would say that we only practice what is specifically prescribed in scripture. Whereas the normative principle says that we can worship God more freely in ways that are not necessarily prescribed, but as I already read earlier today, we would specifically not be practicing or promoting something that is contrary to what is in the Word of God or detracts from the Gospel or detracts from what God has specifically said. I would agree with that definition. So there are different things that I appreciate about it. Like this, I really enjoy the structure and I actually really, really like the hymns that we sing and the psalms that we sing. A lot of them are not something that I've heard before and the lyrics are very deep and I enjoy singing with our congregation and not feeling like, you know, I have to like put on a show or raise my hands and stuff. So that kind of thing is nice because I, I, when I was in more of an evangelical church where they had um, more of the, the common praise and worship bands. I just felt like this pressure to kind of like, I have to worship a certain way in order for me to show that I'm spiritual enough. But I think with the structure of the regulative principle that I've experienced in my tradition, there isn't really like, like that pressure and expectation for you to do or act a certain way in order to appear like you are in full surrender to God or you're really worshiping him. It's more of like regulated and more structured and more kind of trained for you to kind of consider what's being sung, the truth that you're singing, and um, the lyrics of the gospel and stuff. So that's what I personally appreciate about it. (laughs) That makes sense. Yes, it's interesting. This book, again, I highly recommend it, The Very Pure Word of God by Peter Adam. Another plug for it. One of the things that comes up is even if people don't have prescribed liturgy, everybody seems to have their own things, their own gestures or things that they do in the worship services, even if it's the words that they say. Like the just prayer of a righteous man, I just, I just, I just thank you, Lord. I just thank you, Father. Everybody's throwing up their hands or swaying back and forth. I mean, people do things. If, if they don't have a set liturgy, then they're going to create their own. And people tend to do things repetitively. The Anglican Church practices a normative rather than a regulative principle of worship. In the Anglican tradition, there is generosity that distinguishes gospel issues from adiaphora, matters indifferent, essentials from non-essentials. This is the original via media of the Church of England. This generosity distinguishes the English reformers from some other Reformation traditions. Nonconformist Puritans sometimes violated this generosity prohibiting what was not specifically prohibited in Holy Scripture for fear that Anglicanism would spin into lawlessness. The generosity of Anglicanism is no less needed today than in the 16th century. Their moderation consisted rather in a determined policy of separating the essentials of the faith from adiaphora. Anglican moderation is the policy of reserving strong sentiment and conviction for the few things that really deserve them. It is precisely that, and not some supposed middleness between Catholic and Protestant, 
which gives it a critically important role in the 20th century. And that was from Chuck Collins. There is a link to anglicanism.info in the blog. You can find that there. And I will also list it in the episode notes. Something also helpful from Peter Adam. The Church of England reformers policy comprised of three principles. Biblical doctrine, meaning those doctrines taught and supported by the Bible, and edification, referring to growing people in the biblical faith, and the prohibition of actions which did not serve these priorities. Our principles of worship were to directly support what was in scripture and to edify people and to prohibit actions that did not serve these things. So they were able to exclude certain practices that were being done in the Roman Catholic Church, not doing anything for the edification of the people, and they were drawing people's attention away from Christ as opposed to pointing to him. The church is free to retain or establish whatever does not conflict with scripture, so long as it is done decently in order. Decently in order requires that worship be governed by the Book of Common Prayer and Episcopal authority rather than by private judgments of the parish clergy. Within these bounds, there is latitude. And you can find that where the quotation is from, again, on the blog. So on matters indifferent, the question for Reformation Anglicans is not what is consistent with Rome and not what is only directed from scripture, but what is profitable and what is edifying in light of God's word for God's people. Our view on these things, indifferent or not Roman Catholic. Moving on to something else that tends to fall into this category, I think, (laughs) is this idea of a church calendar. Do you guys have a church calendar? That's a good question. Honestly, I don't even I don't even know. I do know that there are certain times where we might recite a different creed, like the Athanasian Creed. When it, I guess when it's like Trinity Sunday. So I have heard some people that are more nonconformist or Presbyterian, maybe Puritan, would say that we should not have any observance of anything other than Sunday because that's quote unquote the Sabbath. So we just celebrate everything every Sunday when we're at the Sabbath. I'm not sure about that one. But like they would go as far as to say we shouldn't have Christmas, we shouldn't have Easter, all those things. And I just want to read something from John Christossom. He's one of the church fathers in the early 4th century. They were passionate followers of Christ and diligent scholars of the scripture and theology. When the seasons of the church calendar or the Christian year or liturgical year developed, it developed as a way to aid the spiritual formation of those who sought to follow Christ. So the Reformation calendar is not against scripture and it is not Roman Catholic. It preceded Trent and lends to the edification of God's people. One other thing that you might notice, if you ever attend an Anglican church, you might notice people using the sign of the cross Specifically, when we pass by the baptismal font, you might notice people using the sign of the cross. Again, this would be something that goes along with Christian liberty in the view of the Anglican tradition. It's a prayer gesture that does not carry with it any magic or superstitious notions. It was used by the church fathers down through the ages as a gesture signifying the believer's union with Christ. And John Stott puts it this way, the sign of the cross on themselves and others. One of the first witnesses to this practice was Tertullian, a North African lawyer theologian who flourished about 200 AD. 
he wrote, at every forward step and movement, at every going in and out, when we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at the table, when we light lamps on the couch or seat, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace upon the forehead the sign of the cross. So there is a long history. That's my point. My point is, this is not a Roman Catholic superstitious gesture. It's a prayer gesture just signifying we're in Christ. Nothing wrong with reminding ourselves of that. And John Fonbell, the rector of Paramount Church, said this on social media, it must be confessed that in the process of time, the sign of the cross was greatly abused by the Church of Rome, especially after the corruption of popery had once possessed it. But the abuse of a thing does not take away the lawful use of it. The sign of the cross and baptism being thus purged from popish superstition and error and reduced the Church of England to the primary institution of it. Upon those true rules of doctrine concerning things indifferent, which are not consonant with the word of God and the judgments of all the fathers, we hold it in the part of every private man, both minister and other, reverently to retain the true use of it. So hopefully you can see our traditions with these matters indifferent are not Romanist. They were very specific as to things that they would allow, what they would promote, what they would do. The purpose is to point to Christ. If the purpose is to point to Christ, to uphold scripture and to deny false practices, those were the things that were implemented. We are not Romanist. No, lying, Nick, no. But yeah, I mean, Cranmer or Sinus, Calvin, if they knew that people were saying these things were Romanists, they would probably roll over in their graves. Because again, they were risking life and limb to teach the things that they were teaching in exact opposition to the Roman Catholic Church. We're not Romanists. (laughs) Thank you. All right, Joy, I think we're done. I think that's a wrap. On to the next one. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Gospel Gal. We hope that this episode has been interesting and informative as the whole series has. Please go back and refresh on these and share them with your friends and family. We appreciate all the likes, subscriptions, and shares to the Gospel Gal podcast on YouTube as well as our website and of course the blog. We look forward to talking to you again next time. And as always, we bid you gospel blessings.